Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 43 to 56. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. This is the word of the Lord. We'll get back to the Romans series after Easter. For now, the three Sundays before Easter... We want to focus on the ministry and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Years ago, uh, already working at this church, oh yeah, that's it. Uh, already working at this church in youth ministry, so quite involved in helping to lead kids and did the job that Keith is doing now, something like that. Uh, so I already had all kinds of church and Christian things on my mind, but I remember I prayed a prayer. It's already a youth pastor. And the prayer was that Good Friday and Easter would become more significant in my faith. Until that point, it's not like Easter and Good Friday didn't matter, but I, I was, as, as much as many other people, uh, it was as much about uh, being a long weekend in some ways, even though there was church and And what, what I mean is, for me and for you, I know this is true, that our faith can become rather self-centered. Our faith becomes about our belief, our choices, good or bad, right or wrong, our Christian responsibilities. Here's the things you need to do if you're a Christian. You need to serve. You need to go to church. Um, and I had this sense, even as a young pastor, that I wanted my spirituality to deepen not just like this, here's the tasks I need to fulfill, but rather my way of seeing the world. I felt, I, I feel this strongly, I still feel it today, 
I felt that that prayer was answered. Uh, the prayer was answered in the immediate, but I feel like the prayer is still being answered. In the immediate time, I came across a book by, by one of my favorite writers who then I had the occasion years later to hear him speak at a, at a conference, a youth pastor's conference, and he was an even better speaker than writer. Um, that's Walter Wonger and Jr. And his book uh, called Reliving the Passion. Many of you have come across this book, some many at my recommendation. Uh, but that book was life-changing for me. I, I, I read the reflections every day. At that time, Sutherland Church would not have... I'm not saying it's better or worse, by the way. But at that time, Sutherland Church would not have used the word Lent. I mean, except I lent him some money, maybe. But, uh, but, but we, you know, we didn't have that kind of, here's the six weeks of, of Lent. Um, but what the Wangaran book was, was reflections during the season of Lent. So the six weeks leading up to Easter... And he wrote in such a vivid way that I often had tears in my eyes and, and was really um, taken. That was in the immediate. And then we started, myself, and I connected with Ken Bell, who was a youth pastor at the time at St. Simon's Church. And uh, we started doing sunrise services uh, early morning, like 5 o'clock. Nobody did 5 o'clock sunrise services um, on, on Easter Sunday with the youth. And ever since, uh, it's been such an important part of my faith that what Easter calls my attention to that I kind of feel like there's a zone around Easter, Good Friday and Easter, where I know I have to keep preaching. I know that in the spring break, and then there's this time in my life, I was already a senior pastor by this point, when they moved spring break to being two weeks in school, because our world runs on the school calendar, not the Christian calendar, Right? And even if you've long since done with school, we're in three weeks of two weeks of spring break now. But what that means is there's three Sundays of spring break, and you can see it here. I mean, people are away, and I remember thinking, getting almost upset at the schools when they used to. There were a number of years where Easter would fall as connected to spring break, and I remember thinking there are going to be people away, many people away on Easter because going away is more important than. And I just. Lord. So then once, once you have a prayer answered in your own life, your own deepening spirituality, you face that temptation, that battle to think what's wrong with other people. So that's another prayer of mine, and the Lord's answering that too. But And each year since, it's, it's been that sense of where there's like this zone around Easter, as I was saying, where I know I have to keep preaching, and I'm glad that I get to preach, but I almost feel like this is too big to even talk about. Like, what Jesus has done for us is so big that my talking about it in some way, this is what I battle, so in some way will diminish it. But yet, if I don't talk about it, you know, it's just going to be spring break, long weekend. So I carefully approach it. In my mind, so a couple things happen in my mind, and, and the words that are on the screen, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, are from the ESV and other translations. Um, Jill read for us, a, or my, I might be getting the translations wrong, but the translation that Jill read for us said he, res, he was resolute about going to Jerusalem, or determined this, this type of language. The language that I always have in my mind, and it might be partially because of the Wangaran uh, readings that, that I read, are that the words are Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. So in my own spirituality, so it, it wouldn't matter. I think it, 
wouldn't matter if I was a pastor or not, but in my own spirituality, this is what I hold for the six weeks, and then it gets stronger and stronger as we get closer to Easter. Here's how I think of the world. So I'll even put the New Orleans trip in this. I'll put your, you know, your break. Some of you have come back from a vacation. Others are gone now. Um, all the tasks you have before you, all the tasks I have before me, the swirl of activity in our lives, right? Somebody's phone broke this week. I had to get a new phone this week. All the stuff that we have. What I have in my mind is we're all doing our thing, and I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm not putting any value statement on it at all. We're all doing our thing, and Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. I, that's Every week I come to preach, Lord, I hope people are here this week. I hope, oh, Sutherland Church must matter to you. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. This is not simply a determination to complete a geographical journey on Jesus' part, right? One day I want to be there. He had been there. Jerusalem is now and was then an actual city, of course, but it's much more than that. It's what Jerusalem represented and what would happen there. The other way of saying these words, and they're harder for us to hear, but Jesus set his face towards his death. While, you're, while you and I are doing our thing, trying to have a church service, organizing things, having a dinner, going away, Jesus, meanwhile, set his face towards his death. And I experienced not only as something that happened back then, which it was once for all, but I also experienced it as something that is happening now. As I am doing these things, I imagine in my prayer life, Jesus is setting his face towards Jerusalem and towards his death. Because the context it's not the context is our self importance, right? As I was just speaking about. Can you get oh oops. That's not it. Now I'm controlling it. See? Ah, look at that. I didn't know I could do that. I can change the song from the front. Anyway, um, you'll get he'll get it back. Or Amanda's wondering, should I go? The slides are fantastic today. The, the context of, our, of, of looking at this Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem is our self-importance. What are the things that you are concerned about right now? All these things we've mentioned, changes at work, a new job. A new job. Corinne, you didn't tell us you got a new job this week. You didn't mention that here, did you? Amen. Or for me, what's important, this, this sermon, this service... That's the level, thank you, that's the level at which, I mean, it's important for me in a way that it's not important for you. That's okay. Because for me, it's, it's my work, right? It's, there's all kinds of other factors that I bring to it. So our, our self-importance, even with the things that might be good, that we hold, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem and towards his death. But we are preoccupied with ourselves. Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and his death. And this is the hope of the world. Not anything that I do here. Not anything that you have coming up. Thanks be to God. Not the best hopes you have for your families or the worst fears that might be realized. The hope of the world is that Jesus Christ has set his face towards Jerusalem. And in this, the things that matter to me most, my loved ones, The things that I count as most important, 
In this, the things that matter to me most are put in their proper perspective. And in this, the things that matter to me are given meaning. That's what I'll discover in my faith. So the next three Sundays we have up there, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. First, this morning, we'll look at what that means in the context of a group of his followers. So now you need to cast yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. I hope that's not hard. As a follower of Jesus Christ in the company of other followers of Jesus Christ. Pretty easy for us today here in this church. What does it mean that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem in the context of these groups of people who are following him? And then next week we'll look at a personal perspective. It's so personal that it's um, intimate and painful. The scene we'll look at next week between Peter and Jesus is it hurts to consider it if you'll allow yourself to see yourself in the story. Because Peter so desperately wants to follow Jesus, but because Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem, he says some things to Peter that wind up hurting Peter because they're just the truth about Peter and his faith. It's the declaration next week that I hope many, most of us have made here, the declaration that I give my life to you, Jesus. Now, in the context of that declaration, what does it mean that Jesus sets his face towards his death? And then on Palm Sunday, we look at Jesus moving towards his death from the perspective of the crowd. You know the triumphant entry? Which I hope you know by now is triumphant as a bit of a mockery. The people who are praising Jesus are not praising him mostly for the right reasons. They're praising him because they think they have a hero and a champion who will overthrow everything that all the powers around that they don't want to be oppressed by. This is the perspective of the crowd. What does it mean from the perspective of the crowd that Jesus has set his face towards his own death? This we cannot call, we can't even call this faith, the crowd. I want to tell you this, and as a pastor of a small church, this can sound self-serving or an excuse. So I I battle with that, and I struggle with that in my own prayer, and I hope you grant that I'm mature enough to, to, to know that. But I will maintain that crowds are notoriously untrustworthy. Do you know that? Again, I mention it often. Take the same service, put it in a huge room with a ton of people, and you'll think it's better. Because of a crowd. Go to a hockey game and hear the cheers. Crowds are notoriously untrustworthy. Here's why. Because the transcendence that they offer turns out to be false. And the way you discover that is when, when the thing is accomplished that you wanted, but then it's over and you leave going, oh, it's just a crowd. So that's the type of crowd that Jesus is entering the city. And all these people have come out to praise him on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry that we'll, that we'll look at in two weeks. But Jesus himself is not caught up in the crowd, though the Pharisees try to shut everybody up. And Jesus says, you don't shut them up because if they shut up, even the rocks will cry out. So in some ways, he's allowing this scene to happen, but in others, he's, well, not, not just in ways, he is actually in tears. He's not jubilant like, like they are. He's not walking around, you know, going, finally, I'm king, which he could have done, and the crowds would have gone his way. So Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem in the context of all of these scenes. But first today, uh, Luke 9, 43 to 57 is what we read or 56, but I'll look right to 62 briefly at the end of the sermon. 
There's four scenes and then some words uh, about what it means to follow Jesus, Jesus' words that he speaks. And these are the four scenes as as I've outlined them here. What's interesting in these scenes is that the... The picture that I'm putting before you is that while we're all doing our thing, Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem, towards his own death. These four scenes spell this out pretty well because each of these four scenes offers something that in the world and even in the church we think would be a good thing and Jesus rejects it and is determined to go towards abandonment, right? He'll be utterly alone and to his own death. Even today, I think we would choose these things over following Jesus. Actually, I'm convinced we would. And it starts right at the beginning. Verse 43 picks up from another story and moves into, I mean, the way the scripture is divided that you have, if you have a Bible with you, it's not, um, we don't consider that inspired of the Holy Spirit. But uh, verse 43 is usually in most people's Bible in a previous section. Jesus has healed a child from an unclean spirit. You have to, in your own sensibility translate what that might mean but he's healed a child from an unclean spirit certainly in these days this would be something like demonic possession that jesus has healed this child that nobody else seemed to be able to help and you get the words that everybody was astonished and then these words while they were marveling so you get to see attention here already while they were marveling what happens now, what should happen and what, what, what would you prescribe happen in a church setting if somebody just healed somebody who nobody else could heal? Superstar. Healing meetings. Here we go. Big. Oh, let's get everybody here. Let's make this a scene. While they were marveling, Jesus was not marveling. He called his disciples aside. And he said, I'm going to be handed over into the hands of men. Here's the tension. What the healing would have done is made the followers of Jesus Christ, this is our context for this morning, think that things could really be changing. And that that perceived change is connected to Jesus Christ. But Jesus, rather than using the adulation of the crowd for his own like elevation, as the people were marveling, he instead speaks about his death. This is in any measure in the world in which we live, and probably then too, a lost opportunity. Not good for church growth. Not good for a movement. I mean, as I preach this, I also try to feel it, or by God's grace, I can feel it. And right now, in, in, in prayer to Jesus, even as I'm speaking to you, I say, Dear God, what were you doing? Of course, what he could have done with his disciples is he could have enlisted them to a program of, of like aggrandizement. That he would just, okay, guys, look what I can do. Now let's really get followers. Let's make this bigger and bigger and bigger. And he says instead, let this sink in. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. And we're told in the text that it's difficult for them to understand. But the idea is, instead of Jesus just defeating all these powers, which obviously he could have done, 
He is being delivered, in a sense, underneath those very powers. Let this sink in is, a, is, is accompanied in the text by an indication that they did not and they even could not understand. And I hold that again in my own faith because I say for myself, I will hold this for me. So here I'm saying it for myself. I need to let this sink in, but I won't be able to understand it. That's faith. Something much bigger than I have the ability to explain and perceive is going to happen. As if Jesus is saying, you are my disciples. You seek to follow me, but you cannot perceive what it is that I'm going to do. Not only can you not do it, you cannot perceive it. Now look what happens next. You'll be surprised. The very next scene. This is so human. This is so you and me. The very next scene, right after Jesus has said this, the disciples get into an argument. It's a perfect, if terrible, example of what we're still talking about today. I have in, The other way I have in my spirituality of Jesus set his face is I, in my own mind, in prayer and stuff, I'll hold in my mind the words, meanwhile, Jesus. So I'm doing my thing, and meanwhile, Jesus is going to give his life for the life of the world. So the disciples... While Jesus is doing this, what are they doing? They actually start arguing about who's going to be the greatest among them. How stupid are they? How blockheaded? How sinful? Except it's the same thing we do today. And since arguments about denominations and history, battles, which church is better, which one is correct, and by God's grace, And by God's intent, while we have centuries of this kind of argument, Jesus is setting his face towards Jerusalem. They are arguing over who is the greatest among them and who will be the greatest. They're arguing about rank. Every such argument, every argument about hierarchy and rank is a fool's game, and Jesus says so. And he takes a child and brings the child beside him. Now you need to know in those times, children were deemed as insignificant or worse. I mean, they wouldn't even be noticed. At best, they were a nuisance. At best. Some of you are like saying, amen. Anyway. At best, they were a nuisance. And as, as the disciples are arguing about which one of them will be greatest, Jesus takes a child and says, if you receive this child in my name, you receive me. And then he says, the least among you is the one who will be great. This is an upending of the way of the world. And I'll be honest with you, it is ridiculous. And in our way of the world... Know this, it doesn't work. If you live your life according to the values of the world, this way doesn't work. Because in our world, rank matters, and credentials matter, and title matters, and status matters. And all I can say is this, apparently these things don't matter to Jesus. One side note here is that I'm careful with this language because could make you think worse about me than you may, but I'll say it anyway. Sin is sickening. Sin would be only ridiculous if it were not also sickening. Right after Jesus calls their attention to something higher, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. Something big is happening. They get caught up in this argument about their own importance. And I can't just roll my eyes at them. Oh, those stupid disciples. Because my sin at times, often sickens me. It's almost every day. I, 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 
How sinful are you? It doesn't have to be some big, deep, dark sin. It's just, even as I tell you about my spirituality and my faith, I can right away again turn to this sense that, well, not just a sense, but to my own self-importance and my own sin. The next verses, two verses, verses 49 and 50. I call them two little religious verses. John answers. Now, after the scene of saying who's more important, and Jesus finishes that with the the least among you will be the greatest, then you get John answers. John answers what? This is wonderful because it's like a child who knows. There's two kids, three kids, whatever, and dad's upset. And they all know, and dad's really just told them that he's upset at them. And then one child basically says, Oh, dad, can I do this for you? That's that's how I hear John answering. John answers. But his answer is, he says, We saw uh, somebody doing something, casting out demons in your name, but they weren't one of us, and so we tried to stop them. Right, Dad? See? And, And what they expect, what does John expect? Jesus to say, Way to go. Son, way to go, my follower. You're doing good work for me. Or in contemporary language, way to go, John. You've protected our brand. Right? So important now. Jesus does neither of those things, thanks be to God. Instead, he says, don't stop them. The one who's not against you is for you. And again, if you think we're past this now, let me illustrate how we're not. Even just a, a, a nice example, like going to a different kind of church service. But certainly if you hear other, like you would call so-called Christians or whatever, talking, and they speak differently than the words you use, or their, their experience is obviously different than your own, or the songs are different or something, or they dress up like Ken and Grady and you know, whatever it might be. And you can have kind of a feeling of discomfort at times over about that, But historically, and sometimes you can see this in yourself, you can even become suspicious. I think that maybe someone should stop this because they're not one of us. Right, Jesus? Next scene. And here's where we get the language that we're using for these three weeks. Jesus sets his face, or he's resolute about going towards Jerusalem, or to Jerusalem. They come into a Samaritan village. Samaritans, as you know, were outcasts. Remember, Jesus speaks about them and encounters them a fair bit. Uh, he talks about the, he tells the parable of the good Samaritan. That's our title for it. He, the woman at the well, walking, he, he goes through Samaria and has this important encounter. The Samaritans figure in the Gospels, but they're outcasts to, to these other people of God, including the followers of, of uh, Jesus Christ, who would not think of the Samaritans as, as people of God at all. And here the disciples go to make preparations to stay in this Samaritan village, but they're not received, they're rejected. And, and so there wouldn't necessarily be hotels and stuff there. You wouldn't just, you know, it's not just money that gets you in, it's, it's hospitality, and they're rejected. And the reason they're rejected is interesting. We're told the reason they're rejected is because Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. I don't know how to explain that to you. I just kind of take that in myself in the text and think maybe he wasn't looking successful or he wasn't looking like they'd experienced him before. And so he's kind of in the background and maybe the disciples are more in the foreground and their rejection is because of this. 
And when James and John saw this rejection, their prejudice comes out. It's as if they said, who do these these people think they are? We were right about the Samaritans all along. We told Jesus that they were worthless. And they turn to Jesus and they say, do you want us to call fire down upon this village and let it burn? And Jesus' silence speaks volumes. But he indicates here in other places, don't do this. This is the tendency in religion, Christianity included. So in Christianity it would be, we got your back, Jesus. Right? Thank God that we're here because we protect you. From what? From this culture, from godlessness, from sin, from whatever. You can go turn on your TV right now, especially in the American experience, and you can hear from numbers of Christian preachers who currently they are protecting Jesus from. So here it's the Samaritans. In history, it's been the Jews. In our current cultural context, it might be people think of this as protecting Jesus against Islam or something. Or just against the sin in the world, against this godless culture, whatever it is. They're saying, we'll protect you against the Samaritans. Let us, tell, let us bring fire down upon this place. And Jesus rejects this. Jesus does not enter in. You remember the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter tries to do this. And I know it wasn't a plastic sword, but when I remember the story in my mind, I put a plastic sword in Peter's hand. Because that's how crazy it is. He's like a little child saying, I got you! And he, he lops off that soldier's ear. And what does Jesus do? He heals the one who's come to hasten his death. Just a scene here, but it's thousands of years of our history, the religious impulse to defend Jesus. And I'll say this simply, but I I should say it loudly and over and over again, but I'll say it simply. Hear this. Jesus needs no defense. And you say, well, yes, he does. Look at this world, how Jesus needs no defense. And if you say to me, no, he does, my response to you, and yes, I've thought about it, would be this. Oh, you of little faith. Nothing will stop Jesus as he sets his face towards Jerusalem. He will accomplish his mission. He will give his life for the life of the world. It's close to a certainty that if we have a zeal to protect him, that your zeal or mine is as foolish now as theirs was then. It will do nothing to add to the work of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? It will do nothing to add to the work of Jesus Christ. It is at best endearing you standing with your plastic sword ready to defend your Lord. So that's it for this morning. Moving away from the marveling of the crowd that could have been used, the disciples arguing about who is the greatest and Jesus upending that concept. Them wanting to protect the name of Jesus Christ and him not so interested in that. And then them seeking to defend Jesus. And meanwhile, Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem. And then this final little word in verses 57 to 62, the cost. I'm not going to preach this part right now to kind of get you to say, you know, this is how much it costs to follow Jesus, and that's what I want you to know. That's an important part of this text, but I want to mention that it's clear in verses 57 to 62 that Jesus is aware of how alone he is becoming on the earth. 
Someone comes up to him. This is the scene. Someone comes up to him and says, I'm going to follow you. It's like somebody new. I'd like to become part of this church. Oh, that's so great. You want to become part of this church. And mo- most likely wouldn't say, no, we're not really into that. Somebody, or we wouldn't be kind of like, yeah, whatever. Somebody comes up to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. And he says, yeah. Foxes have dens and birds have nests. I don't have a place to lay my head. And then you get this, these two encounters of, well, I need to go and take care of my family or bury my father or take care of this business thing. It's different in different scenes, encounters. What I want to highlight here is that while we are all doing our things, Jesus is becoming utterly alone. It is Jesus who will accomplish our salvation, not us. Jesus telling in this scene, referring, you know, someone says, I have to go and and bury a loved one, and then I'll come follow you. And Jesus seems to kind of reject this following. Does that mean that I have to walk away from my family to serve Jesus? Of course not. And those who speak such things often do so to to, um, legitimize their own behavior. So what does it mean then? Well, for me, it's this. I have all these things to manage in my life. I will never fully be able to understand how alone Jesus is in accomplishing salvation for the world. I've got to go take care of my... You know, foxes have dens and birds have nests and you have a home and he has no place to lay his head because his face is set towards his own death This is the first thing, in some ways the only thing, not what I do for him, not how I seek him and I do so long to seek him and try, not in my life how I seek to honor him and I do in my life seek to honor him, not even my faith in him is the first thing. The first thing, the only thing, that from which all else derives is what he has done for me and this whole world. And if I don't see that, that I'm one of the characters in one of these scenes. He set his face towards his death and I am declaring my faith or trying to protect him or working to become influential or significant or to defend his name. Really what I can do in this time before Easter and any time is that I can stop and I can say, Dear Jesus, help me to put my faith in you. The author and perfecter of my salvation. And I simply invite you to do the same. This is beyond just becoming a Christian for the first time, or like the first time you've prayed this. Though we welcome that if you've never prayed this prayer. Let me put my faith in you. But it is for Christians as well, because we are so often sidetracked as these disciples were in these encounters. Lord Jesus Christ, let me put my faith in you. So now we're going to turn to a time of communion. And... uh, Each week.